from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. One of the lawyers finally just stopped me and said, you know, there's no such thing as a story. There are only accounts that are legally defensible in a court of law. My brother is one of the smartest people I know, but he can be a little absent-minded at times, and I've met headless chickens with better senses of direction. When my brother and I were young, we would walk to our elementary school. My brother was habitually the last one ready, so he would leave after me. While he walked, his mind often would wander, and he would get lost. Now, this might not seem strange for a child out in the world on his own, but it's important to know that you could see our school from the front yard of our house. At no point during the journey would you lose visual contact with either the school or our home. Still, my brother managed to get lost. See, about three-quarters of the way up our street, there was a cul-de-sac. My brother would reach this cul-de-sac and wonder, Is this where I'm supposed to turn? Keep in mind that while he is making this decision, he could still see the school in front of him. But yet, he would turn into the cul-de-sac and walk around it several times before stumbling out and finally making it to class, about 15 minutes late. This is my brother's story, and he often tells it to the amusement of his listeners. But I like to tell it too, primarily because it's a good story, but also because he is my brother. I've had to live with this horrible sense of direction, so the story means something to me personally. But as I tell the story, and as my dad and my mom and my three sisters tell it, the story changes. We exaggerate the details to make it funnier, and we project our thoughts and our assumptions onto my brother. There's a danger in this. When you change someone's story, you change who they are. The danger increases when you are speaking on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project, and I'm Micah Craddy. Today on the show, telling other people's stories. Two of our producers look at two attempts, one by a group and one by an individual, to tell someone else's story. First, Dan Hirsch follows the attempt of a creative writing class at Stanford, to write and illustrate a graphic novel telling the story of a Cambodian karaoke singer, the politician who seduced her, and a ruthless wife. The students have to deal with the ethical and legal perils that come from telling someone else's story, especially in a visual medium like a graphic novel. In our second story, Hannah Krakauer visits a San Francisco artist in the process of painting the portraits of all the U.S. soldiers that have died in Iraq and Afghanistan. These small memorials capture the power and difficulty of speaking on behalf of those who have fallen in battle. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. Don't we all, after all, just want ourselves a little perfect piece of the poetry? Yeah, Jack said that we could burn and be a Roman candle Comic books have long told stories. But these stories have been of masked men in tights and capes, fighting for justice using their superhuman strength, or, in the case of Batman, rigorous training and a keen intellect. But these stories are works of fantasy, meant to entertain, not enlighten. In recent years, however, artists and writers have found the combination of words and drawings a powerful way to tell compelling stories, and the form of the graphic novel, an extended comic book, has gained acceptability as a literary form. In 1992, Art Spiegelman won a Pulitzer Prize with his graphic novel, Mouse, A Survivor's Tale. 
Mouse tells the story of Spiegelman's father's experience during the Holocaust. In the winter of 2008, one class at Stanford set out to collaboratively produce their very own full-length graphic novel, a work that would tell a true story of first love, corruption, violence, and karaoke. Along the way, they discovered how serious comics could be and how hard it is to depict someone else's life. In our first piece of the show, Dan Hirsch tells their story. Creative writing instructors Tom Keeley and Adam Johnson wanted to make a full-length graphic novel with their class of 15 students. They hoped to explore the medium and work collaboratively, but mostly, they wanted to tell a good story. This was not so easy a task. First, they had to get 15 people to agree on which story to tell. And when they did all agree, it was the true story of someone else's life. In the weeks of their class, they had to find a delicate balance between telling a good story and telling the truth. In the end, both students and instructors had to wonder if they had done literary justice to their character, a real woman, and whether or not they had made the right choices in telling someone else's story. She got shot in the shoulder, but this is just a close-up of her punching her stomach. And then here would be, this is like 2.30 a.m. This is an aerial view of the whole scene, so like panicked like people who saw it or ran in when they heard the gunshot. Her lying on her back and then the niece clutching her stomach. And that's all I got done. Sweet. I okay. submitted a bunch of drawings to Eric, who is the um, reporter who kind of like presented us with the story of Top Marina. And he told me that in Cambodia there are no sidewalks. I'd drawn a lot of sidewalks, so I don't really know how I'm going to deal with this problem, except for maybe pretend I never heard him say that there are no sidewalks. So that's why I left. I was looking up um, images on Google of gunshot victims and like people in the process of being shot. And my friend was there, and he was like, what are you doing? <laughs> These are the voices of Tom Keeley and Adam Johnson's graphic novel class as they worked throughout the quarter. Over the course of ten weeks, the class met for over nine hours a week in both the afternoon and evenings. Their class would often be filled with photographs posted on the wall, pizza boxes in the corner, and tables crowded with ink drawings, art supplies, and laptops. The class consisted of 15 students, both artists and writers, collaborating together to produce one final product, a full-length graphic novel. Here are instructors Tom and Adam discussing their initial hopes for the class. We had taught a class called New Media Writing, where we looked at anything involving the Internet and the writer. Uh, we did look at graphic novels as well, because there's just a lot of e-comics on the web, and uh, that's where a lot of the students gravitated towards. And coming out of that class, which we taught a year ago, uh, Adam, I mean, this is really your idea. You just dug the graphic novel, and, and you were like, and we're going to make a book. You know, and I was like, well, that sounds good. You know, what are we going to make? You know, like a 50-page book or something? Are we going to make like a collection of short stories, you know, short comics and stuff? And Adam was like, we are going to make a book, a full-on book, and it's going to look great. I think if ever once we would have wavered, it wouldn't have happened. That's right. People kept saying, you're going to do what? You're going to make a book? Yes. With that many students? Yeah. In a few weeks? Yeah. I would have to say absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and I... Saying it enough, I think we've started to believe it. And when the ca- the class came close to uh, starting up, I suddenly felt a tremendous amount of pressure. Like, holy shit, it's real. <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah. It was the hardest class I've ever been part of, even including the first class I ever taught. 
When the class began, things started out well. Tom and Adam had gathered a good mix of students with both drawing and writing skills. They spent the first four weeks reading and discussing various graphic novels and working on small exercises to hone their storytelling skills, experiment with the form, and learn to work together. By week four, it was time to get started on what would be the final product, a graphic novel written and illustrated by 15 different Stanford students. But choosing a story to adapt into a graphic novel that everyone could be happy with was an incredible challenge that almost brought their collaborative process to a near standstill for days. This is Jessica Johnson, Definitely, a senior in the class. Especially when deciding on a topic, there was one day there that we actually skipped our break on a Monday, so it went from like three to eight, and we were just talking about which subject we choose, and we wanted everyone to be happy with it. Everyone was just so frustrated and tired, and they just almost wanted to be told what to do. This is Adam discussing the process of picking a story with various students. It truly felt like in the name of collaboration, we had disenfranchised everyone in the class. <laughs> that, that was a little low. I mean, I went home and I talked to my wife for a long time about that. <laughs> I actually almost cried because I was so frustrated with the topic picking. <laughs> you were? Yeah. You almost cried. I almost class. cried. I was so tired by the end of that day. Like, when you walked out at nine, you just... We didn't even have a topic, and, like, I think there were a couple of us on the stairs just going, like, that was the most painful experience of my life. <laughs> it totally was. But then things changed. One member of the class, Nightfellow, Eric Pape, realized that he had the perfect story for adaptation from his career as a journalist. Well, I've been a journalist for well over a decade. I was living in New York City at the time. Um, at the time, I was a freelance writer and um, who had lived in Cambodia for several years, uh, worked extensively in Cambodia as a reporter. And basically, I, I, I read the story um, from the wire services soon after, um, soon after uh, the, the girl in the story, Tat Marina, uh, was attacked. Um, and then I found out that, that the girl eventually made it to Boston where she was being treated for her medical care. The girl Eric went to visit in Boston was a young woman from Cambodia named Tot Marina. As a young girl, Tot Marina sold shakes on the street to support her family in Phnom Penh. But eventually, attracted by higher wages in a more glamorous life, she moved into work as a karaoke singer at one of Phnom Penh's many karaoke clubs, where she eventually reached a sort of stardom performing in music videos. It was there her beauty and youth attracted the attentions of an older man, a powerful government administrator. It's really a story that, that is more universal than, it, than I realized at the time. It's a teenage girl's story of first love, but one that went horribly wrong. This is a poor girl who met a wealthy, powerful man. And when I say poor, I'm talking Cambodian uh, middle class, which means, you know, you know, middle class in Cambodia it basically means you own a blender or you own a moped because then you have a source of revenue, um, which means, in, in American terms, we're talking dirt poor. Um, she met a very wealthy, powerful man who was a prominent official in the government. He basically lured her into a relationship, um, began to financially support her and create dependencies, and, um, and basically when she tried to get out of the relationship after she found out that he was married, he, uh, he imprisoned her, basically, and said, you can't leave me. After a certain amount of time, she accepted to stay with him because she was afraid he would become more abusive in a sense. I, I don't know that he actually ever hit her. I, I think that he didn't from what I know. Um, but he did do some, some terrible things. And then she decided that she would stay with him. He ultimately 
um, tried to protect her and, and, and care for her, but uh, some other people ended up attacking her out of jealousy, basically on the orders of his wife. And it was a, a horrible attack, which is what sent her to the U.S. In a crowded market, Marina was attacked with acid that left her horribly disfigured and maimed. She is one of many women in Cambodia who have been attacked in this way, and whose attackers have yet to be prosecuted. When Eric met Marina for the interview, she was living with her half-brother in Boston, where she hoped to receive plastic surgery to restore her appearance. Eric, along with another journalist, attempted to publish Marina's story in various American periodicals, but were turned down numerous times. Finally, one set of editors agreed to publish their story, but that was the week before the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. We were preparing a big story for an American audience, but after 9-11, no one cared. So we wondered, what do we do with this material? Nothing's going to happen in the U.S. now because of it. So we wanted to take it to Cambodia, and then we, we thought a graphic novel would be a wonderful way to do that. We thought... If we, if we created a little booklet with, with, with drawings that were almost cartoonish, it would look harmless so the authorities wouldn't figure out it was something kind of subversive in a way. Uh, so that was in our mind. The problem is we had no idea how to do graphic novels and how to find people to, to transfer it. So when I came here on a John S. Knight fellowship and I heard about this class, I thought, hey, this is my chance to get more familiar with this world. Out of there that day. And I mean, all the students, the people who were arguing each way were just like, what have we gotten ourselves into? We're never going to get going. And, uh, and then, of course, Eric came in with the story uh, that he had told to me about Top Marina, about this person who had been burned with acid. And he sort of mentioned, told me the story the day before. And I turned to him in class without any I – don't, I don't remember us having that as the game plan. I think I went in there and was so frustrated from the previous class, I just turned to, to the journalist in our class and said, hey, would you tell a story because I don't feel like talking right now. You and know? I said that, and I, and I ran through the story in about 10 minutes. And, I, and one of the goals of this course was to do some sort of good. And I also emphasized that no justice was ever obtained in, in this case, and it's very unlikely, unless there's a change of government in Cambodia, that the people who attacked Marina will be held responsible. And I think that that along with other elements in the story, and sort of first love elements I mentioned before, uh, of a teenager connected with a lot of the class. And he told the story, and then he had to go. He had, to, he had a meeting to go to, and he left the room. And I think we were about to change the subject, and instead uh, someone, some, one of the students, like Jessica, was like, I like that idea. You know, Can we talk about it? And they talked about it for 15 minutes, and everybody said yes, and we were rolling. It was electric. It was electric, it really and, was. And then I left, and then I got a call back from Tom, and he said he had never seen anything like it after I left. Um, the students unanimously said that they were really passionate about the story. This is Junior, Sarah Sisson, one of the class's I'm illustrators. I'm really excited that we finally ended up with that topic, because I think it's something that actually is like a compelling story and that everyone cared about. But what I found like really compelling was kind of her story as being like a normal 15-year-old girl who wanted to appear attractive and wanted to perform in a karaoke bar and kind of like how that would appeal to a reader in the United States, like a high school reader. Um, and it kind of like universalizes, like there, you can draw connections between yourself and this girl in Cambodia and then you realize like what she went through and you can really empathize with the characters. Here's Jessica Johnson. And all of a sudden, um, Eric, the reporter in our class, came in and he proposed this story that he had heard. Really hearing it from him, it 
gave a true story that had humanity in it, that had all the things that people were looking for, and we were like, hey, here's a thing we can like make a difference, here's a story we can tell. Um, and it was just a really great moment for the whole class to be able to say, hey, we have an idea, we, we're going somewhere, we're making progress. So this was a young woman with no advocate, um, this was a story with no just resolution, and it was a story that the world had conspired to prevent its telling in some strange way. And they picked up that cause. Yeah, the justice element was big, that, that people had attacked her and they were walking around scot-free, and that didn't seem right. Um, I'm a little intimidated by how much work we have left to do. Deciding to base their graphic novel on the life of Top Marina was certainly a high point in the class's collaborative process. Everyone seemed enthusiastic to get to work, but after the initial excitement of choosing the story, it became obvious that the difficult decision-making was not over, and they had to face a whole new set of problems. They had to ask themselves, what is the best way to tell this story? This is Tom Keeley on February 11th. So yeah, so today we're, uh, we have our story, but we're brainstorming about what scenes we're going to draw, what panels we're going to draw. I'm looking up at the, at the board right now. There's one about she used to serve milkshakes in this uh, bazaar. We're, we're not rejecting any ideas. We're just <laughs> accepting every idea, and uh, we're going to put it up on the board and try to come up with a structure for it. The whiteboards in their classroom in Wallenberg Hall were completely filled with various ideas for panels. Every inch of board was covered in suggestions. Throughout the class, Adam and Tom kept adding more as they arose, searching for space in the already crowded board. The students split up to share their individual proposals for the breakdown of the story into acts. But for one group, even the discussion of whether or not to frame the story using flashbacks became a somewhat heated debate. Think of how many movies like start with a murder and then you know you have to go back and figure out how the murder happened. Yeah, think about but the ones that do are good. I the ones, the point of the story was her like psychological growth, though, not like oh, an acid attack. How'd that happen? Not like a murder story. Well, that's I mean that's the basic fact of the book. I mean we're not we're not aiming for a detailed autobiography of her, are we? I mean we're aiming for like an explanation of this one cultural phenomenon that happened to. Deciding on narrative devices revealed a conflict about their basic conceptions of what Tot Marina's story is all about. They went on debating when in their narrative arc they should place the climactic event of the acid attack. Various students, including Lauren O'Neill and Christina Bautista, debated the use of flashbacks. Well, let's put it at the beginning. No, but if you put it at the beginning, if you put it at the beginning, you're like, how could this? How would this happen? I want to know how it happened. No, maybe they wouldn't care. Immediately, you know, it's not like it's not like you're taking all the mystery out of it. You're actually adding to the yeah, like how to the change. I don't know. It's kind of exploitative. Every work of art is exploitative. I feel. Literature is exploitative. Film is exploitative. We can fold the story together beautifully and then be like, you see, this is what, where she was, this is what's happening, what's going to happen with her, and it builds and builds. And
It's Monday night, February 18th, a week later. Even though it's a school holiday, the majority of the class has come in with their homework assignment from the weekend. Several pages of sketches of storyboards for potential novel panels. Today, they have taped all their sketches to the walls and go about the room reading their classmates' storyboard proposals. Here's Jessica Johnson. I've been having a hard time, I guess, visualizing the whole thing, so having the storyboards really helping me to get a sense of what we need to do. So what are we looking at right now? This is the end sequence that I was just told is very depressing, so I went over to see what's happening right now. Basically, Marina is talking to her brother, Secundo, and a reporter. It just looks at the end that no one really understands why. She wants to go back to being a karaoke star because she thinks she'll be beautiful again someday. And it's kind of sad because it just ends with her brother. Even in these preliminary sketches, the students discover that they experience some discomfort and uncertainty when depicting the emotional weight of Tot Marina's story. They're telling a story from a foreign culture and have to efficiently incorporate Cambodia's dark history into their panels. They want to include a brief section about the Khmer Rouge in which throughout the 1970s and 80s, the military regime in power killed millions of Cambodians in a brutal genocide. This is Austin Zumbro and Justine Lai explaining their storyboard sketches to Tom Keeley. Walking down the road, and then we pull out even further and see Market, and then somehow transition to same Market, but during uh, Khmer Rouge Revolution. But we really need to capture that time period yeah. in, in a few frames yeah. right there, okay, no matter how we do it. Okay. And then that gives us, that allows us to talk about the character of the Khmer Rouge Revolution okay. and how that changed things. It's a montage of yeah. marching and kind of images from that were used in newspapers or things that we can find on the internet. Some yeah. sort of scene of violence yeah. and then like skulls and... Okay. As the class goes around the room looking at each other's ideas, it also becomes clear that many are still in disagreement about the basic layout of the story. Some storyboards use the framing devices of flashbacks, switching back and forth between scenes of Marina's life in Cambodia and scenes in the U.S. after she's been attacked. When they come together as a group to discuss, it's clear that some serious decisions have to be made about their novel structure, the narrative voice, and tone. I almost don't want to have this section where someone's turning to me and say, this is why this is why this story is important. I don't feel like someone should have to prove that to me. I feel like the story should just be important as it is. And I want to see this colorful marketplace with the UN, with different... At one point, Lauren O'Neill suggests that the narrative could be framed by a graphic novelist interviewing Marina rather than a journalist, which raises a question about the potential truth claims of their novel. You know, you see those every so often where it's like... Yeah. It's like, you know, and this book is what he wrote, right? you know, like. Does that create an impression that this is truthful, then? That, like, we sat down with her and that... Oh, uh, maybe. Well, There's a weird pattern. In a way, we did. <laughs> There's a weird pattern in this story of taking away her voice and taking away her choices. Yeah. Like, uh, but, I yeah, I totally agree with Dana. It's like we want... The, Marina's voice is what we want to bring through. If we, if we do nothing else... I want her voice to be present in this story. I don't care how bad we succeed or fail or what have you. That's the voice that I want. Again, and once the penciling gets a certain distance, the inking will come behind it. It'll be a horse race. Once the, once the inking starts going in, the scanning, lettering. Cool.
All right. So <laughs> that made Tom weirdly optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> deeply, deeply fearful. <laughs> Last questions, comments? Thanks for coming in today. I know it was your vacation. That's why we have a great opening line. Our opening line is, the best place for a milkshake cart in Cambodia is outside the torture museum. And, you know, it's this weird, odd, you know, line. I think it does grab people's attention. I'm sure some people will pick up the book and say, I don't want anything to do with this whatsoever. Uh, but in any case, uh, you're right. Hopefully, I think Act 5 will be better, but <laughs> I wish it was a little bit more evened out. Well, I mean, no, I'm sure. And, like, I don't think it's going to be that it's March 3rd, two weeks later. This is Tom with Austin Zumbro discussing how the class is doing only two weeks before their end-of-quarter deadline. They are hurriedly walking to the Stanford bookstore to pick up more pens for the illustrators. The bells in the background are from the Stanford clock tower, and for the graphic novel class, it's definitely crunch time. So yeah, so we have so we basically spent two weeks doing one-fifth of the book, and we have two weeks to do the other four-fifths. But I think that we figured out processes, and I think we figured out personalities, and the team seemed to be working really well. So uh, if, I don't know if I have much of a reputation, but I will bet my reputation that we'll be done by Wednesday the 19th. They have about two weeks to produce over 200 pages. Throughout this process, on week eight, we're like, I know what we should have done in week two. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great. Uh, right now, Austin and I have the have the best job at the moment. That means we get to get out of the chaos that is that classroom and go shopping for pens. So we're looking for a pilot. We're looking for many. Yeah. Uh, pilot pilot V5s. And we're so for here's seven Pilot V2. Wine. That's not what we want. We want. Have we bought them here before? No. Oh. How much bubble space around the words? Because, like, you know, sometimes you have a lot of space around, like, the lines. And Back at the classroom, it's a whirlwind of activity with the room divided into groups. Illustrators working on one side of the room, writers on the other, and a layout team making up blank panels. In the last two weeks, the class has made large decisions about their story. They decided to drop the flashback structure for a more linear one, have chosen to write the narration in the first person, and have planned out each of the acts. The first act has been completely illustrated and inked, but currently the illustrators are waiting for more script from the writers who seem to be stalling on subsequent acts. Specific scenes pose unique challenges for the writers. Tonight, they are visited by a professional graphic novelist, Andy Hartzell, who works with Lauren O'Neill on writing the script for one particularly problematic scene. We are working on the uh, act three of, uh, what's the name of this book? We don't have a name yet. Um, that this graphic novel uh, at the, the end of Act 3, kind of climactic sequence. Cool. Well, the big problem we're working through is how to depict the deflowering of a 15-year-old girl at the hands of an older man in a way that is, you know, not, not vulgar tasteful. or crude, something that is tasteful, that is true to the psychologies of the character, that's the big problem that yeah, we... Sounds like a <laughs> 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 Kind of a big problem, right? On their way back from the bookstore, Tom and Austin discuss the challenges of depicting a true story and the sensitive nature of that story. As they get closer to completing their book and presenting a finished product to the world, they are faced with broader questions about the possible implications of telling Marina's story. 
and the question came up, does Marina want this attention anymore? And one thing that helped us feel better about it is Eric uh, Pape, who's the journalist who covered her to begin with, has pointed out that um, she's part of this video about acid burnings that's about to come out. So I don't know if she wants to be in the spotlight, but she wants to hear her story heard, uh, wants to have her story heard. And so uh, I feel like in this last week and probably as late as spring break, we'll have Eric talking with her, uh, we'll have other people you know, getting her take on it, her brother's take. One change that we've made is we're not including names. Uh, right now she's just known as Shake Girl. She makes shakes in the market. In some ways it's creative nonfiction, so uh, we're taking the facts of her life and then imagining. I think that there's some ap- apprehension about that, and I think towards the last week there'll be four or five people from this class sitting around the table saying, what do we have to do? to make ourselves feel comfortable about this. Because uh, if there's one thing that everyone has in common in this class, we're all excited about the story, and we all care a lot about her. And we want her to be uh, to feel positive about whatever product we put out. I think you develop sort of an acute sensitivity to it, just like researching pictures. All the pictures you find online are all of American tourists with these girls. Like, you never... There's no information out there just about the girls it's always like american college kids having a party and you sort of see them in the background serving drinks and there's always that dynamic and then i think i mean tom and austin re-enter wallenberg hall to deliver a packet of whiteout and several varieties of black ink pens to the busily working room of students they continue another long night in what will be a string of long nights as they make the final push to finish their graphic novel 8 30 ish But things did not go so smoothly. In the final push to finish their project, Tom and Adam ran into a surprising new problem when they chose to meet with a team of Stanford lawyers. We were asked if we would speak with the Stanford lawyers because this is going to be something that's going to be printed and people are going to see it. And it does uh, its sources from the real world. I remember coming back to the office one day and Adam had been on the phone with the lawyers for about, what, two hours? Almost, yeah. And I had never seen him so run over in his entire life. I mean, he looked like a truck had just hit him. A truck full of lawyers had a lot of questions for him. They, from my understanding, didn't know what a graphic novel was. Uh, so there's going to be some pictures involved with this. How many pictures will you have? Oh, well, about 700. Oh, wait, wait a second. You're putting words in the characters' mouths? You're doing what? That was an interesting day. I, I didn't know where the status of our project was right after that. Here's Adam discussing the conversation he had with the Stanford lawyers that threatened to terminate all their weeks of hard work. The Stanford lawyers were very afraid that these were libelous depictions and that basically the whole cabinet of the nation of Cambodia would go into action against us. I was on a conference call and there were many lawyers and they were in different places. I thought that I gave a great response to a lot of their inquiries. I was a journalism major, you know, in college, and um, I talked about, you know, 
truth and fair use and cultural commentary and a lot of the classic defenses for libelous depictions, one of them had a, a legal answer for everything, and they just took turns rotating, beating me down and beating <laughs> me down. And, and, of course, there was something accurate to what they were saying, but... Uh, it came to pass that they didn't know what a graphic novel was. I kept saying, well, you know, my students are very invested in the story, and the story's important. And one of the lawyers finally just stopped me and said, you know, there's no such thing as a story. There are only accounts that are legally defensible in a court of law. That was, that was when I broke. That was when I said, I'm not going to get anywhere with these people. But luckily, things changed when Tom had the idea of inviting one of the top lawyers to their class and have them see firsthand what their work really looked like. She came and looked at the students drawing, looked at them writing, looked at them compiling. She saw how their, the desktops of their laptops were covered with pictures and images, and she saw that the, our whiteboards were filled with ideas and and that we were all engaged in an act that I think she had never witnessed before, a mm -hmm. type of creativity that was truly pure. And afterwards, she came back from the ledge of our deaths and, um, <laughs> and said, you know, there, wait a minute, you know, this is a good project. And at that point, she said, we're going to find a way to make this work. Mm -hmm. After some more discussions and some slight moderations, the class proceeds in their work as planned, with the support of the Stanford Lawyers. On March 17th, only a few days before the end of winter quarter, the class is still finishing up drawing. They are not going to make Tom's March 19th deadline, but are still in good shape to finish the graphic novel and send it to the printer within the first few weeks of spring quarter. The room is relaxed tonight, as the illustrators continue to plug away at their final drawings, the writers work on copy editing, and the layout team scans final pages into the computer. Yet, as they are so close to finishing their graphic novel, there still remains some discomfort in depicting the more gruesome aspects of this story. Here's one of the illustrators, Justine Lai, discussing her drawings. Flashback to the, the history, so it's like a mini history lesson um, about the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia. So it's kind of taken me a while to draw just because it's kind of an emotional topic and it's kind of a downer like, oh, okay, pile of skulls. Oh, okay, someone, um, you know, draw some famine, one in one little square. You know, that kind of Despite some of the ethical concerns that still linger, Tom and Adam defend the choices they've made and the liberties they've taken with the story and argue that the final product is not pure nonfiction, but rather a fictionalized account of true events. Nonfiction stories from the real world are often messy. They don't resolve well. But it is a graphic novel, and when people come to a novel, they expect a story that has some kind of shape and satisfaction. And because well, there are only four or five news stories about what happened to this young woman, and stories similar, I mean, she was not alone. She was representative of the unfortunate fates of many young women in Cambodia because of this mm -hmm. phenomenon. Yes. We had to conjure. I, we were, I think, hypersensitive to getting Cambodia as best we could, to being culturally sensitive, to writing a story that we thought our subject would approve of. And yet, we dove in and started writing in the first person. And once they all, the illustration team agreed on the look of the character, they all sat down and drew her over and over and over. They spent hours, and their hands took on a muscle memory of her face. And as we spent night and day writing in her voice and in her dialogue, a version of her 
that was an intersection of the humanity of our class and the humanity of her experience came to be. And so I won't say it's true to her, mm-hmm. but it's true to a collaboration. And maybe she was an unwilling collaborator in this artistic project, but I think it's a truthful story. a hesitancy to put words in her mouth particularly so people didn't want to do first person and people didn't want to do from her perspective they want to do from her brother's perspective so there's a lot of issues where we've kind of been trying to like hedge ourselves and say like well maybe if we put another layer there then it's safer and while that is safer I've kind of been on the side that it's it won't create as good a project because we're being safe instead of trying for that that one truth that we can get to I think she'll really like the book, you know? And we definitely went into this process with that spirit, you know? I don't know some things we had to imagine, you know? Lots of things we had to imagine. Um, And I'm sure there's things that are inaccurate, but this wasn't our goal. Our goal was to get the spirit of the story and the spirit of, of who she is, as best we know, on the page. Through the process of transforming his initial piece about Tot Marina's story into a graphic novel, journalist Eric Pape discovered that the graphic novel can do some things that more traditional, supposedly objective forms of journalism can't do. In an article, there are certain things that I can write, but it will turn people off. And in a graphic novel, you can portray it in a way that, that distances, and yet you can keep the emotional attachment with the reader. We can represent her inner world. Um, there, there's a scene that's entirely fictional uh, in the story that is uh, it's purely representational, where she's trapped as a prisoner. Um, and she writes a note to her brother to come save her, and she folds it into an airplane, and she throws it out the window because she's locked in a room, she's on the top floor of a hotel with a guard at the door, and basically it soars through the air and it represents her hope. And soaring over Cambodia, it starts to rain and and the the plane starts to sink, and then it turns into a a pigeon, and it flies on and it's her hope. I I won't tell you what happens to the bird guy. In the final weeks, Eric tried to get in touch with Top Marina and her brother in Boston to inform them about the graphic novel. After many failed attempts and wrong numbers, he finally talked to them on the phone. Here's an excerpt from an email he sent to the Storytelling Project, describing that conversation. I spoke with both Marina and her brother recently. It was very nice. Her brother still hopes that one day there will be justice for his sister. Marina now speaks English like an American girl. She's 24. She had a sort of bookkeeping job for a little while, and she's trying to figure out what to do with her life. She is interested in potentially becoming a nurse. Overall, she is much healthier physically. She was very encouraging about the idea of a graphic novel, as well as other projects that might help other girls to avoid her fate. What you're listening to is the soundtrack of one of the videos featuring Tat Marina before she was attacked and left Cambodia to come to the United States. Dan Hirsch is a junior 
and an assistant producer for the Stanford Storytelling Project. The graphic novel can be seen at shakegirl.stanford.edu. A few days ago, I was driving by a military cemetery and noticed the beautiful landscaping and immaculate rows of marble headstones. I was struck by the thought that this grooming was not done for the benefit of the dead. It was done to comfort those left behind. It is up to those that remember the dead to honor them and tell their stories. In our final story of the show, Hannah Krakauer travels to San Francisco to meet with Emily Prince, an up-and-coming artist who is telling the story of the U.S. soldiers lost in Iraq and Afghanistan by painting their portraits, all 4,438 and counting. So this is Corey Spates from LaGrange, uh, Georgia, and he died on February 10th, 2008, very recently. So there's this pencil drawing of him, and then there's text below his portrait. So this one says... Spates, who attended Troop High School, had left for his second deployment in November. He and his wife celebrated their first anniversary last week. Emily Prince works in a small studio in San Francisco. Her studio walls are filled with artwork from all different periods in her career. An oil painting from college of small colored diamonds radiating in all directions, large illustrations of bright blue flowers and leaves, and a scrappy collage of a horse and a brown paper bag above her work table. But stacked unassumingly in the far corner of the floor are a handful of archival boxes. Inside these boxes are the most recent part of her current project, a project which has brought her attention from all over the world. The project to draw individual portraits of every single American soldier killed in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. How many portraits have you drawn to date? So I have 3,892 from the Iraq war and... 546 from the war in Afghanistan. Emily grew up in a small town. Which is not really a town, to be honest. Called Gold's Run, up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Driving by on the freeway, you'd hardly know that anyone lived there. Emily lived there with her family, off a dirt road leading deep into the woods. We had snow in the winter, and we had lots of wild animals, like deer and bears were regular visitors on our property. And it was great. I loved growing up there. I have fantasies of trying to work out a way to move back there if I ever could. Emily started drawing at a very young age. First, it was simple, filling in coloring books of Pinocchio in kindergarten. By high school, Emily had set out to make her artwork as photorealistic as possible. She was determined to perfect the art of making something look real. The first time she did it. I was a freshman in high school, and it was just almost randomly a a photo of Keith Richards from a Rolling Stones magazine, and I didn't even know who he was, and I'm sure I would not have recognized Rolling Stones music if somebody had played it for me, but he had feathers in his hat and, like, some kind of silk blouse and a velvet... A jacket, so there were all these different textures, and his face had about a million wrinkles in it. So there, it was like 
a really exciting and varied thing to draw. Growing up in such a rural environment, it was a bit of a shock when she decided to move to San Francisco after college. She felt lost and overwhelmed. She'd never lived in a city before, and it was so easy to feel like a stranger, even in her own home. She wanted to get to know this place that was so new to her, so she set out to do that through drawing. The first project I did, um, I think, and I don't think I consciously set out to do it for that reason, but anyway, I did all these catalogs of what was in this apartment that I had moved into to get to know my new home. So I would take all of these different objects in the house and kind of organize them together. Like what kinds of objects? Yeah, like uh, on one drawing there's all the knives, or on another drawing there's uh, all the chairs or all the lamps or Japanese record covers or um, two-dimensional birds, or three-dimensional birds, or pictures of horses, things like that. But I kind of lost my steam on the catalog drawings at my house, just because after at first they were very fulfilling to me to do, and a joy, but at a certain point they felt too self-reflective, and I want I just wanted to do something that was less about me and more about something else. And I intended, originally, I thought I'd make a hundred drawings just for a nice round metric number. But then I did 52 in the end. And then I, my energy at that point, I felt like needed to be put elsewhere. So then I stopped. I had been doing those catalog drawings which were like making a portrait of my home, but rather than one holistic picture, it was looking at the thing and all of its individual parts. So things all one at a time, like one pair of scissors at a time or dish towel or whatever. I felt like that way of working made a lot of sense to me, like a kind of map making, but not necessarily in a, a linear kind of map, but an organizing and ordering of something in some sense and trying to familiarize myself with something or learn about something, investigate something uh, through drawing. Emily needed a new project, a new investigation, something that was outside of herself. This tool of map making that she discovered, of breaking down an overwhelming hole into digestible little parts, seemed like a great way to approach a problem. As for choosing this new project, Emily says that it just sort of chose itself. There were a million different things that I could have chosen to make an investigation on. But at the time, and still, something that I felt really drawn towards or was compelling to me was wanting to dig a little deeper under the, the surface of the statistics that you hear all the time, like five soldiers died today and two another day and now there are 300 dead total or whatever. But I, whenever I heard those numbers, I just wondered, well, who, these are, each of those numbers represents an individual and I felt like that number was an abstraction and I felt like that situation that it was describing 
really deemed an elaboration. So Emily sat down to explore the statistics of the war. She broke down the number of soldiers killed each day into their individual parts, person by person, one at a time. It's become a piece in progress that she appropriately titles American Servicemen and Women Who Have Died in Iraq and Afghanistan, but not including the wounded, nor the Iraqis, nor the Afghanis. And right from the get-go, Emily knew the commitment she was making. She was in it for the long haul. Um, no, from the very beginning I felt like I'm going to draw all these people. Every single one? That was my plan, yeah. And there are some I haven't drawn portraits of because there are not pictures available of everybody, at least from what I've found in my research. And the people for whom there's no photo available, they still get a card and a place in the archive that I'm making, but there's an empty rectangle on the card instead of a a portrait, but their name is there. And when I install it, they get a place on the wall. When it's fully installed, the piece occupies an entire wall, 25 feet high and the width of the whole room. It takes roughly the shape of the United States, as each portrait is placed at about the location of the person's hometown. As Emily herself says, it's so big that it literally overwhelms your body. But despite its size, the piece is meant to be a collection of individual things. Each one can be examined and taken in on its own. Who was the first soldier that you drew a portrait of? Well, I can remember his face completely, but I actually can't remember his name, but I think that he was from Wyoming. And I remember I used this kind of tan colored paper because he was kind of olive colored skin and black hair and kind of thick eyebrows. And he looked a lot like this kid I went to high school with named Sean Brown. And I think he was pretty young, like 19 or something. When you sit down to do a portrait, what's your process? I have a rhythm that I go through with each one. I get the picture off of the internet and read the article. Then I cut the individual pieces of paper for the portrait to go on. And I measure out all the widths and lengths in the face. Like the length and width of the eyes I measure, and the nose and the mouth and the eyebrows, and the length of the face from forehead to chin, and the width from ear to ear. And so I take all these measurements and then put dots on the page, and then freehand I draw out the face. But I have those dots as a reference. I'm not normally that concerned with things um, being that accurate, but in this case I feel like the important thing is that these individuals are shown. So if they're not shown in the most accurate way I can draw them, then I feel like I've missed the point. And then, after I've made the drawing, I add the text. The text comes from articles that I read, and I try to just call out whatever information is there that seems most biographically specific to the individual, so less the stuff of, like, he fought in this troop. And less this, I try to get... I try to take not the things about war, like I never put in how they die because I want it to be about their life and what it was that made them the individual that they were. But sometimes they're really, really specific, like 
this person was really into drawing and he could draw like ships really well or this person always liked to wear army clothes and always shopped at the army surplus store from the time he was a little kid things like this how many hours a week do you devote to drawing these portraits well it always just depends on how many there are to draw but I always try not to draw more than 10 because I feel like if I draw more than 10 in a day then it it could become too mechanical so 10 is kind of like the it's sacred up until then and then after 10 it would be too many and I would feel like my eyes would get fatigued to it and I'd stop paying attention how long do you spend on each of these 10 portraits each of them take me 30 minutes to draw which is kind of fast but they're small they're like a wallet sized photograph they're just drawn with pencil but if you add up all the ones that have been made it's thousands of hours altogether do you have any of those portraits here I do have some do you yeah can we can we have a look at them sure Emily goes to the corner of her studio and picks up one of the five or so archival boxes off the floor. They're relatively small, and inside are a series of postcard-sized portraits, each contained within its own envelope. They're neatly stacked and leaning against one another inside the box. Okay, here. So I have them in these archival boxes that my mother gave to me, and these are the most recent ones. How many would you say that we're looking at right now in this box? Uh, well, I've discovered that I'm really bad at guessing when I've tried, so I would guess a hundred, but maybe it's, there's more, maybe there's less than that. Sitting down next to this box full of portraits, I can't help but feel a little overwhelmed. Something about seeing each person on their own page so cleanly stacked and systematically organized makes me feel the weight of it all. I know that each card represents someone who has died, and not just an abstract person, but someone whose face I can see right before me. And beyond that, I know that these are only a hundred or so of the thousands of portraits she's drawn. I don't quite know how to handle it all. Emily, though, has a different attitude. It would not be honest of me to say that when I spend like eight or ten hours drawing these in a day, I'm like sad for eight or ten hours, and it's it's not like that, and I don't think it's be humanly possible to sustain that attention or focus and be totally present with it all the time. But I try to take a moment with each portrait and just remind myself of what I'm doing because it would be very easy to get really mechanical about it. And so I try to take a moment during each drawing and recognize that this is a person who had this great trauma that's rippling out into their family. Some of the faces are just sad to me. and some, But even more than the faces, actually, the thing that has resulted in the most emotional moments for me in doing this or the most profound experiences are reading the articles because the face is one thing but then knowing some background information and some of the stories are, are just 
totally tragic. Like what kinds of, do you remember any one specific story? Stories of like a family who, this wasn't the first child that they lost. Like another brother died in a car accident the year before. Thing, things like that or, or people who were there in the war so earnestly and then they end up dead. I gave a talk recently at Portland State University and a woman came up to me afterwards and she, wow, I couldn't believe this. She told me that she had five friends who've died in this war. And that was unfathomable to me to even just have one person but five and she was crying and those moments have then beyond the reading the newspaper articles when those moments have happened they have been the very most moving because it's a step beyond reading the article because then it's hearing from a person who is in, in who had a living relationship with this person whose portrait that I've drawn. Luckily for me, I guess, all of these people have been really supportive. And that, in a way, if I could hope for anyone's approval in the, in the process, like, their blessing is more important to me than the sanction of an art critic. Because I feel like, in a way... This information belongs to them more than it does to me. And so I, I would hope that people are okay with it. And I would imagine there could be a million different responses. And I've just happened to hear from the, the people who are supportive. And it's meant a lot to me. I have lots of my own doubts that come up and repeat about this project. The biggest and most nagging one to me is that I don't have nationalistic feelings and I worry that the piece can come across potentially as being one-sided because it's not showing um, those Iraqis who've died or Afghans who've died. I can't draw their faces in the same way that I can draw the American faces because those you can get pictures of Americans really easily and you cannot of the Iraqis and so I can't get the pictures and also I am not an Iraqi I'm an American so I have somewhat of a read on our culture and this feels I feel like this is ethically okay for me to make these portraits However, not knowing anything about Iraqi culture, I can't make that kind of assumption. I don't know whether it would be culturally appropriate or not for me to do that. Also, once I did a calculation, just like to think, what if I had all the pictures? And if I lived for a hundred years and I worked on this for eight hours a day, I wouldn't be able to finish. So it's impossible. So faces were out of the picture, and I thought, well, can I show the faces and then have a graph with at least dots to show the Iraqi deaths? But that seemed really wrong to me, too, because that would set up a visual hierarchy where Americans get a whole portrait and, Iraq and an Iraqi gets a dot. And that didn't... It seemed better to not 
go there than to do something like that that seemed so unequal. So I worry about things like that. Um, but I am a, at the same time an imperfect human and I, I do feel like this is the best that I can do for this project. I still feel like it's a really small thing. I mean, there's like any one of these people represents an actual human life, and their family is mourning the loss of that person. And I feel like that's where something profound is, and all I've done is made a drawing of them. So, with any kind of perspective, it feels like almost nothing. But sometimes when I was figuring out what to draw, and I those catalog drawings, like what, which objects will I draw today? I'd maybe I'd pick up the flashlights and I'd think, well, is this valid enough to draw flashlights? Or I'd worry that maybe it was arbitrary what I'd picked. But these are never, never that way, never arbitrary. Do you think you'll keep up with this project for a much more extended period of time? Sure, I mean... I feel committed to it for as long as the situation keeps going. It would be hard for me to stop. I mean, the, the longer that I do it, the more attached I've become. And it doesn't even feel like art to me anymore. It feels more like a personal practice, even a spiritual practice that I spent, that I go back to every week and spend time with. I, I could not not do it now. I, I couldn't have looked at all these faces so far and then stop. It's just a part of my life now. Hannah Krakauer is a sophomore and an assistant producer for the Stanford Storytelling Project. You can see Emily Prince's project at www.allofthamericanservicemenandwomen.com. Today's program was produced by myself, Micah Craddy, and Jonah Williams. It was engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Daniel Hirsch and Hannah Krakauer for their stories. Daniel would like to thank Lee Constantino for his assistance, as well as Eric Pape, Tom Keeley, Adam Johnson, and everyone else from the Stanford Graphic Novel Project 2008. Hannah would like to thank Charlie Mintz for his production assistance. Original music for the show was written and performed by Chris Ayer, Hunt Alcott, and the Yeltsin Collective, whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their generous underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of The Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. This week's podcast will also feature the poetry of Sean Hill, along with an interview with the poet. Tune in next week for Seeing Ourselves Change, stories about who we used to be and who we are now. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Crowdy.